It turns out that in the last a year or two, solar has become the cheapest form of power generation available. So if people want to live in the woods, instead of living in a cramped little apartment, they can buy 50 acres of paradise, build a house, have fiber speed internet at low cost, all the solar power they could possibly want, clean air, no worries during a pandemic, grow your own organic food. You, you can live in paradise and still work in a high tech job or a high finance job. All right, Mike, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on here. You have a huge, uh, you know, history and you've worked a lot in tech and in remote. And so I'm really excited to have you on here and just kind of uh, learn as much as we can from you. But first, I just got to start out here. Um, the mug that you're drinking from, it looks very yes. familiar to me. Is that yeah. an AeroPress product? It's an AeroPress Go. The greatest product for digital nomads ever created. It's, okay. Uh, well, I, it's funny because I got I got it for Christmas, and then we were in lockdown for a while, and then then when we came here to Mexico, we're in Oaxaca, Mexico. I brought it. It's just it's just uh, it's just the best. Yeah. So I my one of my very first businesses actually was I made little carrying cases for the AeroPress. Ah. So, okay. Yeah. But I, you know, it's funny with the AeroPress Go is like, I saw so many comments of people going like, you know, the one thing that I never thought I'd need from the AeroPress is for it to be smaller. Do you really feel yes. like the smaller one really brings that much more than the bigger one? I do because, uh, for a couple of reasons, one is that what the, um, uh, we pack, like we go for you know, months at a time. And, and we're like race car driving engineers, you know, we're just trying to shave off every ounce. We're trying to shrink everything we can. And the biggest problem I had with the other one was it didn't have the cup part. So for a long time, I traveled with like a Mason jar, but you know, it's kind of heavy. Uh, you, sometimes I stay in Airbnbs and places like that. The cup doesn't fit. It's like, you know, weird Euro cup. That's like too small or whatever. And so I just love to not think about that with this thing. The second reason is what I did is the, the AirPress Go comes with a little stir, stirring thing and it comes with a little scooper. I threw those out and I stuffed the inside with coffee in a Ziploc baggie. So, and then I carry it in my actual backpack, uh, uh, not my carry on. And so if let's say, for example, the airline lost my luggage and they put us up in a hotel for a night and whatever, if I can boil some water, which I can do because I have a little coil, one of those little cheap coils that just goes into the outlet, I can work. I ain't working without coffee. That's like, you know, that's like uh, the fundamental thing. But I can be stuck anywhere, make really good coffee, and I'm happy and I can work. So that, that, that to me, like the other one was okay for packing your regular luggage. It was okay. Uh, this one, I can, I always have it with me. Mm. 
Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about traveling with mine. I I don't normally travel with mine. I've been thinking about making that switch and starting to travel with it. And the other thing is, uh, you're actually the second person that I've had on this podcast that uses one of those coil things and has mentioned it. The other person is, I don't know if you're familiar with Tynan at all, but I know he travels like he uses it for tea, but I also have seen those little um, collapsible. I don't know if you've seen them. They're like collapsible water heaters. I'm yes. kind of thinking about maybe doing that yeah. too, but we're getting bougie here in the travel at this point. Yes. You know? Yes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I, 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 I care. I travel with one of those coil things and I almost never use it. It's just those rare occasions when you got nothing else. I mean, everywhere we stay where there's a tea kettle and, you know, it's a worst case scenario. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a saucepan that I can boil water in. Um, we don't stay anywhere that doesn't have a kitchen, but every once in a while you get stuck somewhere or something happens and you have no other way to boil water. So some, and also sometimes in, a, in extreme situations, we've actually stayed in like where you rent a room in somebody's house uh, when they don't have a well-developed Airbnb situation. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just want to, I just want to work. I don't want to go into somebody else's kitchen and like make coffee. I just, so I just make it in the room. So they're, they're right. good for that sort of thing. And they're cheap. It costs like eight bucks. Right. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of optimizing, like caring and what we travel with. I just had uh, a Fred on from uh, Tortuga backpacks, got to nerd out about all those things with him, but I want to ask you, uh, you know, as people can tell, you've been, you know, doing this for a really long time. You have a lot of experience uh, writing about tech and sort of writing about the remote revolution. Uh, But one of the things that I noticed is that your tagline, so to say is, the world's only lovable tech writer. Why are you the only lovable tech writer? Uh, I say that uh, as a joke because I just I just love the the irony of of saying something like that. It's a it's a it's a way to kind of like um, have fun with my you know my colleagues, and it's not a very lovable thing to say about other people, basically. So it's, it's just I, I just like I've always liked it. So I've been using that for like a decade, I think. <laughs> I, I love it. It's like, huh, interesting. You know, like that's a, that's a <laughs> yeah. good tagline. So what took you, what brought you to writing about tech in the first place? Like what got you interested in tech? And then like, what made you want to go down this path? Uh, after I graduated from UCLA, I became a, a newspaper reporter and then a columnist, then an editor. And um, one time, a long time ago, I was nominated for a program to the Rotary Club to go to Brazil. This is one of my first extensive trips abroad. My first, it was my first extensive trip abroad, more than, more than a week or two. Uh, and um, we were a bunch of young professionals. We we're all in our 20s. And the idea was these young, like there was a, there was a cop, there was like a city planner, there was a software developer. It took, you know, one of each. I was the token journalist. We went down to Brazil they sent some Brazilians to our area. So it's like an exchange program. We lived with Brazilian families and um, I got lost in a, in a jungle uh, not the Amazon jungle, but I got lost in a little forest uh, in Southern Brazil in the interior for a couple of hours. And I was, I don't know, I was just, just trying to find my way and totally focused on not walking in the wrong direction and all that kind of stuff. And suddenly it hit me. I love my job. But the thing I love most about my job is the little Macintosh I was using, right? The, the net, ether networking, the technology, like all of that was really exciting to me. And the local politics covering like water board meetings and, the, you know, 
fire department or whatever. It was just boring me to tears. And I thought, yeah, computer magazines. What am I doing working in some newspaper when I could be working in computer magazines? So I got a job at a computer magazine uh, that was acquired by a big New York publisher. Uh, it was called Windows Magazine in the 90s. It was one of the top four tech publications uh, in the world at the time. It was PC Mag, PC World, uh, PC, PC World, uh, PC Computing, and us. And um, and so for about a decade, I was uh, first the managing editor and then eventually the editor of Windows Magazine. So I so, full-time journalist doing a print publication. My favorite part of that was writing editorial columns, opinion pieces. And so I decided I just wanted to do only that. So I went freelance writing opinion columns about technology. And I've been doing that for many, many years now. And it's, it's, uh, it's a dream job for me. It's, it's basically writing opinion columns is all I've ever wanted to do. So uh, you said that, you know, the favorite part of like working was that Macintosh computer that you were using. Yeah. And then I find it funny that you're writing for Windows Magazine, then PC, yeah. PC Magazine. Are you still a Mac guy or did those times in the PC world convert you over to the, uh, the PC and Windows side of things? I, I'm a, um, I, an all platforms guy except for Linux. I don't really use Linux much, um, but my main uh, system is a Pixelbook. Google Pixelbook, and um, so I'm I'm all you know it's a Chromebook, so I'm I'm like all in the cloud or whatever. Um, on my phone, I go back and forth from an iPhone to an Android phone, depending on at the moment I'm ready to buy a phone. Who has the better camera? It's usually Apple, but uh, before my current iPhone, the best camera was a Pixel Three, a couple of years ago, I guess. And so I had a Pixel Three for a while. So I'm I'm kind of like. I like them both for different reasons and I'm happy to go back and forth on the phone. My next laptop will be a MacBook just because I want to do things like, for example, right now I'm using the crappy camera on the pixel book for this interview. What I'd like to do is use my Sony uh, a seven as my camera for zoom calls and for podcasts and uh, TV appearances and things like that. But you, you can't do that with a pixel book. You can do that with a Windows machine or, or a Mac. So I'm, I'm basically done with Windows. I, I have nothing against it. I just, I'm a, I'm, I don't feel like getting used to how the keystrokes are and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm happy with a Mac. So, I, you know, if you ask me in a, in a couple of years, I'll be 100% Apple, probably. Um, the, uh, the problem, I mean, one of the problems I have is like, I usually don't switch until I have a problem with my system. Um, and this, this Pixelbook never has any problems. Like the keyboard is, I beat the crap out of this keyboard and it's perfect. The screen is perfect. The battery's great. Like it, this thing is an amazing machine and I, I'm just waiting for something to be wrong with it so I can get rid of it. But I, it's like, there's never anything wrong with it. So. Yeah, I'm, uh, so I've been, um, uh, when I got onto Mac, I was like, okay, I'm in this all the way. Cause I love kind of how everything integrates. And, uh, my wife just got the new M1 chip, which is just like, mm. I'm so jealous watching her use it. 
but I'm waiting for just like you. I cannot, I, I just can't believe that um, yeah. Apple hasn't upgraded the camera on the in, on the laptops in any meaningful right. way. So I'm right now I'm using a Logitech uh, higher end camera, just goes on top. Um, yep. And so I'm waiting for the new. I'm hoping the new laptops, the new MacBook Pros, have the M1 chip and a better camera, and then we're gonna yeah. be, then we'll be cooking. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. about that. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, you wrote an article and we met on Clubhouse, actually, which is funny. Mm -hmm. You're kind of the first person that I've gotten to interview that I've met on Clubhouse. But uh, you wrote this article called When Work From Home Becomes Work From Anywhere. And it really Mm -hmm. caught my eye. And I read it and I watched some videos and your interviews. And I was really interested in this topic. But what made you write that article? Uh, So so I've noticed something that's kind of interesting, which is that, you know, People like you and I have been engaging with the concept of remote work and digital nomad living and all the all the variations on that theme uh, for a long time. But like the general business press, which I also write for, I write enterprise articles, I write all kinds of stuff. They have this sort of two dimensional view of it. So in in the view of the ge- general person who works in business, the idea is, oh my gosh. Um, some people used to work remotely and most people didn't. And then the pandemic hit and then a bunch of us worked remotely and everybody got used to it. And now more people are going to work remotely. And I'm like, wait a minute, it doesn't stop there. So the psychology of remote work is actually kind of interesting. And the pandemic has been very transformative in terms of people's attitudes. So here's what I think is happening and is going to happen uh, in, in, in large numbers. So, so, I'll take my own experience. So like when I'm in the U.S., I'm generally in Silicon Valley, right? It's very expensive. Everybody's commute is horrible. Uh, it's it, everything about, but you can get a really good job. So this is, Silicon Valley is like my poster child for an extreme case of what most business people go through, which is that these people make some people in Silicon Valley make huge salaries, and they spend it all on the high cost of living to live in the so they can have access to that job. So they don't. Their, li- their lives are not great. They, you know, they make $200,000 a year, $100,000 a year, or whatever, really good salaries, but their cost of living is even higher than that. So they're like in debt and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so let's say you work for Google, for example, or you work for Twitter in San Francisco, you work for Airbnb in San Francisco, you, and that's okay, we're going to work from home. So you go home, you're sitting here, you're sitting there by yourself, you live in an apartment building. It sucks to get in the elevator during a pandemic because you're like, oh my God, it was like, typhoid Mary, just like in this elevator, like before I got in and like, you know, there's all these, and, and you're, and so you're sitting there and you're like, okay, I'm paying a fortune for this apartment that I never leave and to have access to the culture, which I can't go to and the job that I don't go to. And so it's like, you know, maybe I'll go, maybe I'll just go to like Sonoma County or I'll go nearby. Like I'll, I'll, get, I'll go to, maybe I'll go to a, get a track house outside in the suburbs, find a, you know, whatever. And then they go there. And then once they're there, they're like, well, this is boring. Like, what am I doing here? Like, I'm going to take a workation, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go for two weeks, but I'm going to work uh, to some other location. And they're like, well, this is working great. Why, why am I? And then eventually people, there's a, there's a psychological process that happens where at the end of it, it might be a year, it might be 10 years. Uh, you are like, I'm just going to live in my paradise. For some people, that's in the middle of the woods. For some people, that's moving all the time, like me, I like to just constantly keep on the move. Some people, 
want to go to just like to a beautiful, they want to buy a one euro house in Italy and just restore it and live in this little town in Italy, whatever their nirvana is, they can have it. And the thing that's going to really drive that is Starlink, the, the internet satellite service, which is going to be global. It's already uh, potentially global because uh, uh, Elon Musk says, if you have, if you're a subscriber in the U S you can just grab your thing and take it with you and set it up there. I mean, so it's, it's a whole new world. So I, what I'm trying to uh, point out is the difference. So that's one difference. There's a process. It goes from like working from home to working outside the city to working to working literally anywhere you want it to, to, to go. Now, the other part of it is who is doing this? So the pandemic was really instructive. Before, it was people, there were lots of people who were like, I just want to work from home. And then they figured out how to make that happen. And the mm-hmm. people who didn't want to work from home, from home didn't work from home for the most part. I mean, there's some overlap. And then, um, and so the, uh, the, it was certain types of people were working remotely, not HR managers, not, you know, people running teams. Right. It was stuff. all tech people for the most part with some marketing in there. Exactly. If you, if you look at the digital nomad boards for job boards and stuff like that, exactly. It's all software development engineering marketing and you know maybe a couple of other things people building websites whatever and 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 so now for the last year like the hr manager has been working from home team leaders have been using zoom like the it's the whole different class of people are getting a taste of remote work and i think that's going to change everything it's a, it's a whole new kind of person that is going to be joining us uh in this journey of basically living wherever the hell you want to and so I, I just think it's it, it's very it's very important. For, so I wrote that uh, article for Computer World mainly so that business professionals, including people who own companies or are managers and companies, understand what the ramifications are. And these include things like, well, if you're going to have employees, um, and that's the other thing. Like, it used to be the digital nomads were freelancers. Now digital nomads are going to be employees in much higher numbers. And so you're gonna if you have employees in five states, you have to deal with the employment laws in five states. You have to deal with the tax ramifications of five states. And there are strategies companies who have been doing this for a while have been using to maximize their financial uh, uh, their financial advantages in scenarios like that. For example, the oil industry uh, has been doing this for years, where a Texas oil company will have uh, lots of employees in, in the Middle East, right? And there's multiple countries they can li- live in the Middle East, but the company's like, no, you have to live in Dubai. Everybody is in Dubai because we just want to deal with one country, one set of tax regulations, and then they have somebody who, uh, some expert in this field who goes and they they figure out how to do all the tax things so that, you know, the, the difference is millions of dollars for the company. Anyway, so I, I'm writing about all these implications about how, business is going to change, uh, how management is going to change, uh, because it's not just people working from home. It's not just people working remotely. That's just the start of it. Yeah. I think one of the things that you kind of touched on in that article that I've been talking about as well, is that like remote work doesn't just mean like, you know, popping on your laptop and doing the same thing that you were doing in the office. There's, if you like, kind of like go down 
the rabbit hole, a lot of things change, right? Like just the way that you go about in your business is going to be different. The way you communicate is going to be different. The way that you create operations manuals are, this is all going to be different. So what are, you know, some of the things that you think, you know, along that line is like companies should look at in changing, right? So if somebody's listening to this and there may be an employee at a company that is starting to transition remote, what are some of those things that they need to be thinking about and, and kind of improving in order to better work remotely as an entire team, as an entire company? One of them is that there's a, a whole new management style that is called for for remote employees. In the old days, people would show up to work and then the management style was, oh, hey, everybody, let's get together and let's figure out this project. We'll have a meeting, figure out what we're going to do, assign. People have deadlines and everybody, you know, whatever it is that the business is. Now, you have to, you have to deal as a manager with people's um, emotional and mental well-being. It's a fact of life that this is now part of your job if you manage people who are working remotely because... When people work remotely, they don't have that psychological transition every day from going from their home life to the work life. They don't, you know, when you work in an office, you get up in the morning, alarm clock goes off, you have, make some coffee, check some emails, take a shower, get dressed, you get in the car. By the time you get to work, like you're, you're like a different person. Like that's another part of your personality. And, and you don't think about what's going on at home and you just work at work and then you go home and you go back into personal life. When you're working remotely, you, you, you might spend almost all your time in a single room sitting there. People get paranoid. Are they going to fire me? What happens if they fire me? Like, how do I get a job if I'm remote? All this kind of stuff. Um, I'm out of the loop. Are people having meetings without me? Like, you no, know, people go through this weird, um, you, you remember the old days when they, they used to say, okay, don't have emotionally fraught conversations on email because you can't read you can't read the other person's intentions with just words on a, on a, on on email. Uh, you should call people so they can hear your voice and all that stuff. And that was great advice. But there's something similar to that with remote workers. When people go to an office, they're sort of always checking in, like, "How am I doing? How do people like me?" Like all this kind of stuff. And when you're remote, you sit there. You don't have those cues, those social cues that tell you how you're doing and. And whether you are a valued person or whether you are the opposite of that or whatever. So managers have to like really make this shift. I think it's going to take years and years and years. But if you want to be on top of it, you need to get started with this idea right away. And you need to be like super um, embracing of the employee. Like you, you, you want to have one-on-ones with the employee over Zoom calls or whatever, like, and just have chit chat, like people missing the water cooler conversations, the break room conversations, the bathroom conversations, the hallway conversations, the parking lot conversations, they don't get any of that stuff. So you, you need to like simulate that so that they feel connected on a human level to the people they work with, especially uh, the manager. So that that's probably the, the, the biggest one. The, the, the second one is the, the idea of, um, we need to finally flush down the toilet this idea that uh, a person who manages other people, what that means is you sit there and you watch them work. Oh, look, their fingers are moving on the keyboard. They're working. So, okay, fine. That stops and we have a problem. Like, we're going to get rid of that forever because that's just a terrible delusion to have. We need 
to judge people's work, figure out how to judge it by the quality of the work, by the deadline performance. We need we need to uh, get a little bit um, anal retentive in terms of clarifying and identifying what the success means and failure means, and then judging that employee based on whether they succeeded or failure based on those clearly communicated metrics. So you see where this is going. A manager used to be able to be in this middle ground where they could sort of like, uh, they didn't have to be that touchy feely, that, 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 that much of a friend or a counselor or a psychologist. And they didn't have to be that meticulous and uh, exacting in terms of their communication about job performance and measuring it and all that kind of stuff objectively. They didn't have to do those things on the extreme, but now they do. They have to do both of those things. They have to be far more um, uh, uh, touchy-feely, and they have to be far more the opposite of that, which is like very exacting. So the, the, the sweet spot for, for managing people uh, who are remote is, that, is, is, is to be really good at both of those things. And most people aren't. Their personalities are one or the other, typically. So we, if, we're, if we're really good at the metrics part, we've got to learn the people part. If we're good at the people part, we've got to learn the metrics part. And, and so this is the, this is the task that, that we're all facing because it's, the psychology of working remotely is 100% different from working in, a, in an office. Yeah, I have. Uh, so I, you know, didn't have that experience of working in a company before there was like Slack or anything like that. So like my first experience with like communication over online and business terms was always on Slack. And, you know, I was managing a team of 20. And the thing that I found in that experience was emojis are your best friend when you're trying to communicate emotion. And that sounds so strange. But if you type out like, okay, or like whatever, you know, you're just trying to like just bust out a quick response to something. I found mm-hmm. that that can be received for whatever reason you assume it's harsh. Right. And if you yeah. throw in an emoji there that says like smiley face, whatever, it sounds so odd and it's so millennial of me, but it totally works to sort of convey, you know, like emotion and like, you know, where, like how you're communicating this. Um, in terms can, can of, I stop you there for a second? Yeah, of course. Because I want to, I want to offer a theory as to why that is the case. Because you know, people don't like emojis. Some people don't like emojis. They seem frivolous and all that. But frivolousness is the point. So, and the giant brains that we have that enable us to communicate through language. The primary evolutionary advantage of language is small talk and gossip. Right. Not not talking about. Uh, Einstein's uh, theory of relativity. It's about hey, how good morning, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right. Blah blah blah. That stuff is absolutely vital for human beings because it's where we check in, where we, uh, it's where we uh, mutually agree upon the social status, relative social status, degree to which we are allies or friends, uh, all that kind of stuff. It's all that small talk. So there are a lot of people who don't like small talk. But small talk is everything. Emojis are the small talk of the written word, right? So they're, they're the frivolous things. If you're if you're paranoid and you think like your boss hates you or whatever, and they give you some ridiculous emoji, you, it's like you're like, oh, they're they were, you know they're goofing around a little bit. They, it's very casual, uh, and so yeah, those emojis are really cool. The the the, the linguistic equivalent of those, of, you know, humor, uh, which is can be a little tricky, but like. The great thing about emojis is they they can't they're they're harder to be misinterpreted. 
Um, although, although the one that the one that um, I think is the most misinterpreted is the thumbs up emoji, because it seems like it seems sometimes it seems sarcastic. It's like, yeah, good talk. You know, it seems like. So I would be careful of that one. But like the the, the goofy ones, you know, are uh, are great. And and small talk in general, or something that replaces small talk, is absolutely necessary for people to feel um, uh, good about where they are at and to be able to focus on their work. Yeah, let's um I I'd love to kind of shift and talk a little bit about this concept of the death of cities, which is kind of you mentioned it a little bit. Uh, you talked about it in the article that everything's going to be linked to by the way if anybody wants to check out all of these resources. But uh and you mentioned that you know just now when we were talking about, you know, people moving out of the city, maybe going to other parts that are less populated. Uh, I'm yeah. a city fan, so I know I, I get this concept. I get this idea of why cities, you know, could be, you know, going downhill and that kind of stuff. But what do you think happens? Like how, how do cities readjust from being a place where work happens, where economy is built and where mm-hmm. offices are, right? Like, I mean, cities were mostly built through offices, through jobs, mm-hmm. through, you know, uh, factories. So where right. do you think the position and the role of a city goes from here post-COVID and in a remote, you know, world? I mean, I really, I really don't approach it from the city point of view generally. I approach it from the person who's trying to make a choice about where to live uh, because I don't know a lot about city planning or any of that kind of stuff. But I will, I will point out um, that... Cities aren't static. There's a dynamic at play all the time. So let's let's look at two. Where where are you now? At the moment, I'm in Detroit, Michigan. Detroit, Michigan. So that's a great example of a city that went through a collapse of 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 an industry. It was a you know a car. It was car town where they made all the all the cars. And then like a lot of that was outsourced and then people started fleeing and stuff like that. And so what happened was it wasn't just that the car make the people who worked in car factories left wasn't just that. It's just that they took all their money with them. And then the businesses that depended on the thr- pe- lots of people who were well-paid kind of went away. And then the attractiveness of that for a lot of people went away and and fewer of those people were there. And it's this dynamic that sort of led to this big decline of the city. And then you look at a city like New York City, where uh, it's kind of the opposite. So so there are tons and tons and tons and tons of really rich people in New York City, right? And they pay to go to the opera. They, They fund these like incredible restaurants and all kinds. And so if you look at the, the, the two extremes of that, you you have you can see the dynamic where the attractiveness brings in people with tons of money that 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 pay and support attractive things, which attracts more people. Which you know it's a dynamic and going in either direction. So what I'm ta- what I was talking about is that I think most cities are going to go in the direction of say Detroit in the 60s and 70s or whenever that the the the, the big the big change happened in the car industry in Detroit in that direction to some degree or another. And I think, you know, the Bay Area is a perfect example. The second reason is that if you're working through a laptop, you need a really good internet connection. With satellite-based internet like Starlink, which is fiber speeds, fiber prices, but you can be literally in the middle of the woods. Now that's not a reason. 
So now you've taken away two of the biggest reasons to be in a city. Okay. Another one is culture. Well, uh, I don't think people are really going to go to the movies that much. And, and, you know, they're going to watch TV streaming over their satellite connection, which they can now do in the woods. So, so some of the culture restaurants, no, you can't, you can't download a restaurant, but much of the other stuff, more and more of our culture is digital and online, no matter where we live. And so the general appeal of it um, is declining. Now, added to this is the knowledge that, that pandemics can happen. They're catastrophic, and it's far worse to be in a city during a pandemic than it is to be uh, in Oaxaca, Mexico, where everything's open, the restaurants are open, you can go around and do all this kind of stuff. Um, whereas if you're in a city, it's like you don't want to be around crowded people, uh, crowds and so on. And so I, I really think that, oh, and the one, one more thing is that you want all the comforts of a city. Like if you, if you think about a cabin in the woods or living abroad or whatever, it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's kind of like there's the, 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 the if, you, if you've ever bought property in the countryside, the biggest thing is like, is that property, does that property have access to services or not? Services meaning electricity, uh, the phone system, internet connectivity, sewer system. So if you don't have a sewer system, you got to build the septic, right? If you don't have electricity, you got to do solar and all that kind of stuff. Well, it turns out that in the last two, a year or two, solar has become the cheapest form of power generation available. So... If people want to live in the woods, uh, they can, instead of living in a cramped little apartment, they can buy 50 acres of paradise, build a house, have fiber speed internet at low cost, all the solar power they could possibly want, um, clean air, no worries during a pandemic, grow your own organic food. You, you can live in paradise and still work in a high tech job or a high finance job. I just think that most people won't flee the cities, but enough people will that the economic uh, uh, success of that city will go down a bit. A few fewer cafes, the part, the less taxation, the streets won't be taken care of quite as well. The parks have kind of declined a bit. The schools are kind of like get worse. Um, there'll be, I think there'd be a general decline in the quality of life for people in cities and a general improvement in the quality of life in people in rural areas. Now little towns have fast internet, right? So it's like, that sounds pretty good. So like, if you're raising kids, go to a little town that's like, you know, uh, 20,000 people in a clean place with, you know, access to forests for hiking and uh, outdoor recreation, stuff like that. That sounds better than raising your, trying to raise your kids in San Jose, California, or, you know, Houston, Texas, right? So I, I just think that, I just think there's going to be a, uh, everybody should brace themselves for a decline in the quality of American cities, basically. So it's interesting because, uh, so in 2017, I wrote an article about how Cincinnati can win the remote, like, like can win the remote revolution essentially like uh because and it was interesting because i met this woman who was from la she worked i believe at lucas film or lucas arts I, I can't remember exactly what it's called and she was starting a startup in cincinnati and she was not going to come to cincinnati because she was worried about 
if her startup doesn't work out, where does she find a job in Cincinnati for her very specific set of skills? And my whole thing was that like, hey, if, you know, cities start to embrace remote work and kind of like attract and, you know, attract companies that employ remotely, then like you're also going to boost the startup ecosystem there. But I think where I disagree, I agree with your general thesis, but where I disagree is I think there's going to be losers and there's going to be winners in cities. Like personally, even, even if like I, I have the ability to live anywhere and I choose to go back to Cincinnati over and over and over again, because for me, it's the social stuff, right? Like uh, I want to go out to the restaurants. I want to go out to the bars. I want to go see these interesting things. And I think that that's lacking in a small town. And while yes, there will be, a, a, a you know, things are going to kind of decentralize a little bit. So where everybody kept going to New York to do this one show, maybe now it's going to go to more places or whatever. But I think that there's going to be, big losers like a New York, a San Francisco, a Chicago, and then there's going to be big winners, specifically, I think in the Midwest, where cities have been going through a little bit of a rent, and this is obviously just America speaking, but they've been going through a little bit of a renaissance, I feel like in the last 10 years, like Mm -hmm. every person that I meet that's from like Knoxville or Indianapolis or Columbus or wherever, they're like, oh, it's been great the last 10 years. And I think those cities are going to attract people uh, and kind of give them what they want out of a city, but not have the negatives of a New York, for example. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, uh, that's perfectly reasonable. You see during the pandemic, uh, the population of California went down for the first time in, I don't know, a hundred years or something like that. And, and where people were going was like little towns in the South. Uh, they were going to Tennessee and, Austin and also the Austin, Texas, a big town in the South. Uh, a few people going north to you know Oregon and, and Washington, um, but really the people were everybody was moving to a smaller place than where they were. Nobody was going from a little town in California and moving to New York City or or, or Chicago. Um, they were going from San Francisco to a little town in Tennessee, and so everybody got a little funny when the pandemic first hit, because everybody's like, wow, we don't know where this is going. People were buying real estate. Remember when the real estate market suddenly was booming and people started buying land and like doing all kinds of stuff. And now it's settled down. People feel uh, a little better about it. But uh, the psychology now is what happens with the next pandemic, right? Right. What if there's a really bad pandemic? How can I be how can I be ready for that without going full prepper and just like having an underground bunker and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, appeals to some people, but most people, they, they don't really want to do that. So, you know, I, I think, I think you're absolutely right. There'll be winners and losers. There'll be a shuffling of the decks, the deck. Um, but, um, but I think in general, I think, I think that you're going to see people able to live a city quality life in terms of their comfort uh, in the middle of nowhere. And you're going to see this whole digital divide between rural America and urban America be, be largely erased by uh, satellite internet and also the initiatives that are, are currently, uh, the, the federal government's been working on this and they had bidders, which by the way, Starlink uh, won most of the bids on that, but they, they're also trying to get fiber to cities and all that kind of stuff. So I think the digital divide is going to change the calculation a bit as well. But you, you mentioned like, uh, cities that are trying to revitalize. I just wrote a piece uh, for my newsletter about all the many ways, I don't know if you, this was on your list to talk about, but all the many ways that governments are trying to incentivize digital nomads and expats to move to where they are. One of them is 
state there are states or there are cities and states in the United States who will pay you cash, like ten thousand dollars if you move there and stay there for a while. Uh, literally pay you cash to do that. There's something like eleven states. I mean, if you think about it, that's twenty-two percent of the states or something like that. Uh, are trying are literally paying people to to move there. Alaska is one of them, um, and so that's interesting. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there there are uh, digital nomad visa type incentives and all that kind of stuff. But um, everybody what do you wants. Think, what do you think governments should be doing to attract remote workers that you haven't seen them do yet? Whether it's governments or cities or states. Uh, well, I think I think that um, for a while we got a glimpse of something from Google when Google is doing Google Fiber. They were going to wire up all the cities with uh, Google Fiber and encourage entrepreneurs to go there. So, so I think one of the things uh, that they can do is to make sure that their infrastructure is killer, so that people who are entrepreneurs can 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 go there and 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 thrive. Um, th- there are. There are things that um, you have in Silicon Valley that, that you don't have in other places that you should have. So one of them, one of the, one of the secret things that isn't talked about much uh, that exists in Silicon Valley are uh, they're like maker spaces where they have tools and laser cutters and and lathes and like people milling around who know how to use all that stuff and. A, a, a young person can go in there and start do a startup. My own son did that in Silicon Valley, which has killer maker spaces. He was at one where he, you know, he did uh, prototyping and stuff for his product, and 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 really was made made all the difference. I also have a friend in uh, in uh, Perlin-Fontaine in uh, in Provence, France, who is uh, she herself is a, owns a software company, and she and her husband created this makerspace in a dinky ass little town uh beautiful little town in provence but it's like the population of this town it can't be more than two thousand or three thousand or something like that and she built this makerspace in it with all this stuff for entrepreneurs so if you if 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 uh if a medium-sized city in in america wanted to have a little bit of silicon valley they would do they would do three things they would make sure that the finance financial part of it was there so that it was low cost of living for entrepreneurs. So I don't know, pay people like they're doing now, maybe even pay them more to move there. The second thing is that you would, you would have super high speed internet available at low cost. And the third thing would be to, to have a, the best thing I think they could do that they're not doing is to have a city funded killer makerspace, not just for tech, right. For, uh, Wood woodworking spaces and stuff like that. Places where people can go and 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 have access to tools that are too expensive for them to buy, and too high end 3D printers, stuff like that. Uh, and and can mingle with a bunch of other smart entrepreneurs. Maybe find partners in those spaces. Basically, just have a low cost place for people to get the resources, the knowledge, the tools and everything that they need to, to, to build something and start a new business. And, and it, it's, you know, it's a long-term project. The city did that, you know, it would, it would pay off over the decades, right? Because 
some of those people would actually start businesses, start hiring people. They'd be headquartered in that town. They, there would be other companies that would provide services that enable that. successful company, employees have to be fed or whatever it is. And you, you, you basically be um, kickstarting this, um, you know, resurgent uh, entrepreneur economy, which I think is far better. You're, you're sitting duck. If you're, if you're in middle America, uh, you're sitting duck for like Amazon decide to come and build yeah. a warehouse there. And so everybody's got a job, but they're like working, you know, 12 hour day shifts, like mindless work. That that isn't help, really helping anybody. It's going to get driving. It automated eventually, anyways. Exactly. So if you can build a creator, a maker economy, a entrepreneur economy, that's an economy that where you can gain some self sufficiency and people can have control over their futures. Yeah, it's actually something that I've seen. Um, not necessarily cities take take on, but uh, co working spaces. So I've seen a lot of co working spaces that have introduced. Uh, maker spaces where they have 3D printers, all this kind of stuff, and also, uh, you know, studios. So I've seen ones that have come out with like places where you can literally use their camera, record your YouTube videos there. They have the podcasting equipment. They have rooms that are, you know, so much more of what we do is in front of a camera recording things that like, yeah. I think more and more co-working spaces that I'm seeing are doing this and whether they're funding that themselves or if a city's intelligent fund, you know, giving grants to have co-working spaces do that. I think I, I totally agree with you. That's a that's a big win. Um, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, I know we're running a little bit short on time here, but uh, you mentioned a little bit about the shift of work in, when we started talking. And uh, one of uh, my favorite follows on the internet is Naval, and one of the things that he talked about a few years ago that I now uh, I feel like everything that we've been talking about in terms of remote seemed like it was going to take 10, 20 years to happen, and now it's happening. You know, very quickly. But one of the things that he talked about was this gigification of work, right? That more and more work was going to go from uh, full-time, right, to this gig-style work. And we've already seen a little bit of that going from full-time to there have never been more freelancers, there have never been more consultants, and eventually going towards that gig kind of work. Where do you see that going? Like, do you agree with that prediction? What do you think the landscape in the next 10 years looks like for work? Because it's something that they can do while they still have a job. Uh, you know, they, they dip their toe into that water. Uh, they have a side hustle. But there's a ton of pushback on it politically. So one of the biggest ones is uh, AB5 in California, which was a, a law that was just initially catastrophic. Uh, and then they sort of like softened it a bit. But they, they're, they were just willy nilly going after uh, freelancers uh, the, the, in the initial uh, bill, which was supposed to target mostly Uber drivers. Uber, right. And, and their idea was that, no, that shouldn't be a gig job. That should be a full-time job where you're in the union and you have like health insurance and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we're just going to mandate that. Uh, and that's like, you know what? Let's do freelance writers as well. You, you can't write more than 35 uh, articles uh, per year uh, if, if, that, if the writer is in California. And so a bunch of publishing companies immediately just laid off a bunch of freelancers. Cause yeah. like when, when you're like me, when you're, when you're a, a, an editorialist, you write a weekly column. There are 52 weeks in the year. Now it didn't, it didn't apply to me cause I'm my own company and, and I've already set it up so that my freelance relationships are actually, they're, they're contracting with my company. 
And so I work for my company. I, I'm a full-time employee of my own company. So legally, I didn't fall into that. But it was just the impulse, the political impulse uh, on the left, uh, mostly, is to attack gig work because they think, well, oh, there's like, you know, X number of thousands of, of Uber drivers. If we just pass a law, then all of those Uber drivers will get these amazing jobs and highs up. No, that's not what happens. What they do is they lay off, they fire most of them if they're forced to, you know, have full-time employees. And then you're back to where you, you're a cab driver and they, the people who drive Ubers don't want to be cab drivers. That's why they're Uber drivers, right? And so the, the, there, there's going to be pushback on the side hustle, bit, you know, gig work economy. But on the other hand, there's going to be a lot more people wanting to do it. Because in a lot of, in a lot of, um, realms, including my own as a writer, the, the job security doesn't come from uh, working at the at the at the factory in the, in 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 the factory town with lifetime employment. That world is gone. Uh, job security comes from having uh, five different sources of income. Mm-hmm. I, I get income from my newsletter. I get income from this. Po- I I write for three or four publishers on a regular basis and some publishers very occasionally I've income. My, my wife has her own, uh, uh, no, nomad based company. Uh, and she writes and has a newsletter. So we have like so many sources of income and, and, and some every once in a while, one of them goes away. Right. And then I have all the other ones. And so that's job security. And, and I, and I don't think they think of it that way when they want to take away the gig job. They don't think about the fact that they're taking away people's job security. Right. And also and also they're 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 taking away people's control over their own income and their future. So, uh, you know, I strongly oppose laws that ban uh, gig work. Uh, I do think it's going to be an attractive thing in the future. And I do think finally it's going to expand beyond the usual suspects of, you know, engineers, marketing people or whatever. I'd like to see it expand much, much further. And, and it'll be necessary for the digital nomad lifestyle anyway. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on, on balance bullish about it. Um, I, I, I made the case um, in, in, in a recent piece about how everybody's trying to incentivize freelancing by like they pay you to move there if you have income from out of state or uh, countries will pay you to move to, their, to a city in a foreign country if your income is from out of state, because it's a perfect thing. You're, you're right. basically transferring money from the United States to that place, and you're not taking a job. It's like the best thing in the yeah, world right, for right, that right. local <laughs> government, right? Whereas California was like with AB5 before they changed it, they were like, we want, if you're a freelancer in California, we want you to move. We want you to leave. We don't want you here, basically, is what they unintentionally were saying to, to freelancers. So anyway, I think, I think that because of remote work, because of the digital math, if there are laws that prevent gig work the gig workers will move somewhere else yeah yeah if anyone's listening and is interested in the ab5 law we actually did an entire episode of it back on episode uh 41 and that was with uh, emily baker who's uh, a lawyer who did a, a ton of work she's a california-based role uh lawyer who we basically dove into all of that how to protect yourself from the law all that kind of stuff um mike uh one last question you know if uh anyone's listening uh, who's an entrepreneur who's looking for an idea to start something. 
what are where are the opportunities right now? Where do you see are maybe like the top three opportunities where uh, somebody can jump in there and and create a product or a service that kind of is in this field and that you see kind of changing? The the change to remote work itself is a business opportunity for entrepreneurs. So you're talking about billion dollar industries having to make a huge, fast change to an entirely new way of doing things. What's changing? Well, the money being spent on office space is going to shrink. The money being spent on business travel is going to shrink. The money spent on uh, equipment for Zoom calls, for, for mobile devices, for security, for remote work. I mean, the security situation for remote workers is a disaster right now. Yep. Huge opportunity in people who specialize in the nuances and particulars of transitioning to remote work. For lawyers, that's what I would do if I was a lawyer. I'd be a lawyer who specializes in transitioning to remote work. If I was an accountant, there, there are enormous opportunities there. Make yourself, and whatever it is your you know, your inclination is, whatever your desired role is. In my case, I'm a journalist. I write about remote work. That's, that's an old example, but there are new examples now. If you're in HR, for example, right, uh, and you want to live all over the world, be a digital nomad, it's now po- not, not only is it now possible, but as somebody who lives remotely and has a background in HR, you are now in a position to be a consultant, to be uh, a speaker, a paid speaker, to, to have a, a content that helps businesses deal with the world of HR in a, in, in, a, in a distributed cloud environment where there are lots of remote workers and hybrid, work, hybrid workforces. So that's my, that's my big, big, big advice. Don't become a marketer. Don't make websites for people like every, all the digital nomads in Chiang Mai are doing. Uh, I mean, if you're a software developer, do that. But like all the whole world of business is now opened up to remote work and they are super, op- it's, a, it's, a, it's a gold rush if you think about it this way, because everybody's being forced. And when I say everybody, I'm talking about the Fortune 500 and everybody mm-hmm. else. Like all these companies, they, have, they haven't a clue about how to make this work, right? They don't know about the, 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 the cybersecurity part of it. They don't know about the management part of it. They don't know about the infrastructure part of it. You've got, you've got millions, tens of millions of people in the U.S. using consumer infrastructure for Fortune 500 co- companies, the work they do for Fortune 500 companies. What are the implications of that? What, what uh, you know, it goes on and on and on. Training. Training. Uh, for for companies in this field, so I just would say look at the look at the changes that companies are having to go through in remote work, and how can you help those companies based on what you know and what you can do, uh, and make sure you're remote. Also, if you're an entrepreneur, I would I would uh, encourage you to 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 have an all remote work. Uh, if you're hiring people, make sure everybody's remote and, mm-hmm. and use gig, gig workers and all that kind of stuff, and just live the live the live the life of of the of of the gig work that you know use use cloud-based tools, uh, use cloud-based communication systems, and and become an expert, help people with their remote thing, and then and 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 eat the dog food yourself. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree on all of that. The cybersecurity one is something that I've been talking about for uh, a while, kind of like with people, but it's not uh-huh. something that I can do. But I'm like, listen, this is right. it's going to have to happen. Somebody's going to have to do it. And they're going to make a lot of money, whoever figures out how to do it. So, um, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. I feel like we could talk all day. I have so many more notes that we didn't get to. Maybe we'll do a part two at some point. Uh, but thank you so much. Uh, let people know uh, who are listening, where can they check out your work, uh, your writings uh, on these topics? Okay, so my last name is spelled E-L-G-A-N. So you can find my personal blog at elgin.com. You can find my newsletter at mikeelgin.substack.com. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Elgin. So if you know how to spell my last name and you know how to spell Mike, then you can just do a Google search and, and I'm all over it. So you can find me easily. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. And for anyone listening, we're going to have uh, links to everything that Mike mentioned, all of the articles and his website. So uh, yeah, Mike, thank you so much for coming by. 